The man in the mirror doesn't look like he's struggling. He looks well. He isn't feeling my pain. I need to check back over and over again. My image really does contradict the way that I feel. Surely the man looking back at me. He cannot be real. When others see me, do they see this man in the mirror? Is this the image they perceive? No wonder they don't see my illness when I find it hard to believe. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses, but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back by finding our joy? During the summer of 2020, while we were all spending a lot of time at home, I bought a lot of stuff, including a new bed. Well, when I moved the old bed out, of course, I cleaned underneath it. And there were a couple of shoe boxes, and one of them had some old journals in them. So it was really interesting. I opened them up, and I was reading a few entries that I had put in there. But it was things that happened like 10 and 15 years before. Journaling for me at that time was really helpful because at that point in my life, there was like a five-year span that I was feeling kind of lonely, and it really supported me then. For many of us, journaling is a way to manage anxiety, reduce stress, or to cope with depression. There are many forms of journaling, from tracking symptoms you're dealing with day-to-day to to providing an outlet to practice positive self-talk or just drawing even. Whatever you use your journal for, it's there to serve you. It is personal. For many of us, it's an extension of ourselves getting our thoughts on paper. My guest today, Robbie Gillett, the author of Thoughts of a Warrior Beneath the Tracksuit, uses his journal to express his thoughts through poetry. This MS thriver values family and his opportunity to be a parent. He expresses his gratitude through the poetry. Robbie's story is unique, but I believe we will all be able to relate. Let's chat it up with Robbie. Hi, thank you for being here with me today. Not a problem. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're trying to connect really well here because Robbie is across the pond and in the UK, of course. And so it's great to be able to connect. We were talking about connecting with people all around the world. And it's great to connect, especially um, people in our situation. Robbie, I know you were diagnosed with MS and you actually have a poem that you wrote about it, which is published in your book. Would you mind sharing that story with us, that poem? I'll read you the story that leads up to it and then I'll read you the poem. Wonderful. In March 2015, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It seemed like it took forever. In 2014, it started the road of getting to my diagnosis. One day I froze at work. I was completely stuck. I was lent over a unit and I couldn't move. I couldn't shout. I couldn't talk. I was absolutely terrified. Between 10 to 15 minutes, I was just stuck there. After I managed to get my feeling back, I went straight to the doctors. 
and they thought I'd had a stroke. Then began all these other strange symptoms. My left hand started to curl shut. I wasn't doing it. It was doing it on its own. It was just curling shut. I'd try to open it and it would curl back shut. It was weird. I would get these headaches. They were so bad. They would come on in an instant. They would cripple me for hours. I was walking with a sway. My balance just became really sketchy. As all these strange symptoms were happening, but each one was short-lived. So not many people could actually see what was happening at the points it did. The doctors couldn't pinpoint what was wrong with me. All these symptoms were atypical of an MS relapse because the symptoms didn't last long. AMS relapse would normally be a heightening of previous symptoms or brand new ones which would last over a period of time. But mine were more intermittent. It took a year to finally get a diagnosis. It's not an easy illness to diagnose. It takes a lot of time and some patience too. There were so many tests. There was an ultrasound, blood tests, eye tests, ECG, an evoked potential test, balance test, had MRI scans, a lumbar puncture. Mine was slightly painful. It was, I didn't like it. And with all the results added together, it added up to MS. It took a year, but I finally had a diagnosis. I was heartbroken and I was so scared, but at least I had an answer. I have active relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. There is a clinical reason for what's been happening to me. It's not in my head and I am not crazy. And this is the poem that I wrote. Definition of disabled. Of someone having a physical or mental condition that limits their movements, senses or activities. This is me. Now I'm a disabled man, classed by the Oxford Dictionary, a dictionary that has no feelings, no emotions, it does not know me. Still it's given me a label, one written in the book which publishes the language we speak, we read, we write. It has taken away my right, my right to just be me. In this hashtag be kind world we live in, we should not have a stigma or be labelled. The Oxford Dictionary gave me one. I'm Robbie. The definition of disabled. When I read that poem last night, I was just thinking about how that definition puts us in a box. And it made me really reflect on that a little bit because I don't want to be defined like that if it makes sense. I don't know. Tell us about your feelings when you're writing that poem. I when I write, I'm genuinely quite sad. So I use it to put my emotions somewhere like a daily thought I will put somewhere or a bad day I'll put it somewhere. So when writing this, I was thinking about how that I've been labelled. Now I am a disabled man. I'm disabled and I was filling a form out and it said, are you disabled? Yes or no. And I am now defined as disabled. I didn't get to pick that, but I can still walk. I can still talk. My hands work on and off. But still I'm classed as disabled, as where disabled would mean something doesn't work, as where I still work. So why do I have the label of being a disabled man when I'm not fully disabled by definition? Does that make sense? It does. And I think that a lot of us toil with that. And once you say and label yourself disabled, there's a lot of connotation that comes with that. I don't know. So... This persona of the tracksuit, what does that really mean to you? How does saying you are beneath the tracksuit, what is that really telling everyone? 
Well, Beneath the Tracksuit, it started as a poem called Beneath the Tracksuit. I was out shopping and I'd parked in a disabled bay outside a supermarket. And I had these older people staring at me, giving me funny looks. And it was the same. I'd went swimming one day at the swimming pool. That a lady had stopped me. Why are you parked in there? You shouldn't be parked in there. And then I got out of the car on my walking stick and I explained to her I had MS. But people, because I wear tracksuits, people tend to have a stigma about somebody that does wear a tracksuit. I genuinely wear a flat pig hat and I wear a tracksuit. But before I was diagnosed with MS, I used to wear a lot of skin-tight clothes, skin-tight jeans. But I have a foot splint. I have an FES, which is an electrical device which helps lift my foot up and down. And I have the muscle wraps for knees and arms. And you can't wear these under skin-tight clothes. It doesn't work. So a tracksuit, it fits. They're easy to get on. There's no buttons. They're easy to get off. So I wear tracksuits all the time because they're so much easier to wear. But I'm the funny-looking guy with a tracksuit and a flat peak hat on with a walking stick or in a mobility scooter or in a mark cart doing my shopping. But people don't know what's beneath the tracksuit. And so they can't see what's going on underneath. They don't know what's going on in here or in here or the pain I'm suffering daily. They just see this young guy in a tracksuit on a walking stick or in the mark cart or in the disabled bay. So that's where beneath the tracksuit came from. So it really is trying to get to the heart of you. Like you said, it's not in here. It's not in my head. It's not in my heart. It's just on the outside. And I think that's really poignant and represents you and how you're feeling about this diagnosis of MS and the invisible illness. People say it's invisible until it isn't. And people questioning why you're parked in a handicapped spot, a disabled spot, that, I don't know, it's got to be frustrating, no? It is. It was at first. It was, everything was at first. As the longer it goes on, you sort of, you learn to deal with these people. You learn to, or lots of people just genuinely know. They seen you there before and then they're just like, oh, it's that guy. Or then you genuinely find better ways of dealing with it. I am disabled. Or you just ignore them because they don't know. Because I might look strange. I'm a disabled guy in a tracksuit, but they don't know. And that's on them for being so judgmental, if you like. But as a society, I think we're born to question. So they're questioning me. You look too young to be in there. I do look too young to be in there. Of course I do. I'm 33. I've been parking in them since I was 30 years old. But so as a society, they see he's too young to be in there. Why is he in there? So they're going to question. And I don't blame them for that. I think it's the ones where they come over quite aggressive. It's maybe they need to have a look at themselves before they're doing things like that. Yeah, if only we could wear a big sign that says, take a look at yourself (laughs) before you look at me. That would be kind of nice sometimes. But yeah, that's not always going to happen. So you said that your diagnosis took a year. And mine was pretty quick. It could have taken a year because they told me to come back every six weeks for an appointment and do all those tests you were talking about. And I was like, no, I can't wait. My entire body's numb. So I checked myself into the hospital. So during that year that you were waiting for some answers, 
What was that feeling like? We heard it a little bit in in your story and in your poem. Could you articulate that a little bit more for us? Well, the not knowing. I still struggle with the not knowing now because you don't know. Nobody knows, but it was the not knowing then because what is it? Why did I freeze at work? Did I have a stroke? They don't know. I've got to wait for these tests. Is there something different? Is there more problems? What am I expected to do next? What is expected to happen to me next? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? I didn't know. So I was scared. So I was waiting all the time for these appointments. And my first MRI scan came back with a slight scar in there, a slight plaque. So it's probably about the size of my thumb. So it's not really slight. It was, it's quite a big plaque. Uh, and then it was just a suspicion of demyelination. That's what they said. So, And then they sent me back about four months later. And then it had grown. And then there was about four other spots everywhere else. And then, okay, this is MS. So what they did, they sent me the results back and told me, it looks like you could have multiple sclerosis. You've got an appointment with the neurologist. It was eight months away. I took that letter and I marched up to the hospital, sat in the waiting room and said, I'm not leaving until I see the neurologist. You can't send me this letter and tell me I've got to wait eight months to talk about it. And they did. They got the neurologist to come and see me. I was nice about it and they was nice about it and everybody understood. And then they gave it to me all there because it what was a year could have nearly been two. So, But I couldn't wait anymore. The test results and that you're always Googling it, trying to figure out what it could be. They say not to Google it, but who else is going to give me the answers if the doctors can't yet? So the fear of it was very terrifying. Yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine for that long too, it's like the buildup. So I'm proud of you that you stood your ground there because yeah, it could have been eight months later. I don't understand that. We'll make an appointment in eight months. And I just think that like, How can you allow someone to be ill for that long before they know? Like uh, that waiting, I don't know. I don't see that with other illnesses. I don't see that with cancer, for example. And I know that it moves very quickly or has the possibility of moving very quickly. Is it that they just think that MS is slower? Is that what it is? I don't know. I don't think it's right to make people wait. I'm not sure. I feel myself lucky because I went to the hospital and I saw the neurologist and he said to me straight away, you need to get on steroids straight away to help calm the relapse down. Mm -hmm. So if I hadn't gone to him, I would have been relapsing for another eight months before he'd have given me the steroids. So I thought it was very lucky, sort of poetry in motion, if you like, that I went up there that day because it could have been so much worse. You took it into your own hands. You were an advocate for yourself. I mean, that's something that I've learned is that you have to be that way sometimes and really push because otherwise it's the waiting. You're going to be sitting there waiting for so long. And so I also heard you talk about the FES, that electrical device. I've never heard of that before. Can you share with us about that? Okay, so you must have heard of dropped foot. Yes. Yeah, so with drop foot, we all, you can get a splint which holds your foot up in place or you can get a foot strap again that holds your foot in place so when you walk it keeps it upright. With an FES, it's called a fun. I might get the words a little bit wrong. Functional electrical 
system, maybe. But I get two electrodes and I stick them on my calves. And I have a pressure pad that goes into my shoe and a little box that sits on my waistline. So every time I lift my foot up off the ground, I get a little electric shocks in my calf that lifts my foot up for me. That's wild to me. Is it painful at all? No, I don't know if you ever do it over in America, but as kids over here, we used to do this. Do you remember them batteries that you can lick and then they give you an electric shock? Yes. So it feels like that in your leg. Okay, okay. And so it just gives you a little bit more power? Yeah. And then in, so you have these two electrodes and it just lifts your foot up for you. It's very wow, clever. Oh, that is very clever. It's called a functional electrical stimulation. There you go. See, you knew what it was. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> Google did. Google helped me just now. So that is pretty wild. And so if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be able to lift your foot up with ease or as easily. When I walk around the house, I just drag it everywhere. I, I just drag it. I, if I lift my foot up, I have to lift it from my thigh. So I, if I don't have it on, I walk really funny. So I walk more to one side. So I just drag my foot around the house because I've always got to wear shoes in my house, which I genuinely don't. So I walk, <laughs> yeah, I just drag my foot around. And when I have new socks, you can see where I've walked in because it scrapes the cotton off my sock and it leaves like a snail trail where I've been walking. Uh, because <laughs> yeah, we laugh, but yeah, it's a pain in the butt. It's not optimal. You're electrocuting yourself a little bit to get it to lift up. So it must be, it must be a pain. Yeah, it is. So you mention in your social media and things that the poetry helped you get out of depression. Was the depression there before the MS or was it brought on by the diagnosis? I've suffered with my mental health on and off throughout periods of my life. So I think I've always been a bit susceptible to it. But after getting diagnosed, I think... People were shocked because I took it so well. I took it so well. But I think that I looked like I took it so well, but I was just bottling it up because, again, the whole stigma thing. I'm a man. I don't cry about these things. I don't talk about my feelings. I'm, I'm that guy. I was brought up to be that guy. So I never spoke about it, and I just dealt with it all in here. Um, but And then the reality of it started to crumble me. And then as symptoms started progressing as years went on, I've only been diagnosed for eight years and it's, I'm getting worse and worse as time goes on. And as I was getting sicker, I think when I hit 29, it really started to break me psychologically and I couldn't handle it. So I was bouncing in and out of really deep holes of depression and shutting myself off from the world and going to see a doctor, going to take more tablets, pulling myself out of work for a little bit, going back to work, pulling back out of work. And... It was a real struggle because I couldn't quite comprehend what was happening to me. As where if I'd have spoke about it from the beginning and been more honest and reached out and spoke to people at the beginning, then maybe I'd have an idea of what was to come instead of it just being a big slap in the face, if you like. So I should have probably started talking to people at the beginning instead of waiting for it to hit me and then break me, which is just difficult. It was too difficult. And it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, we can go back and say, yeah, I wish I did this sooner. But when you're in it, man, it's hard to recognize that. It's hard to see it. It's hard to say, I'm going to seek the help and support. And you're facing so much is just, 
too much coming at you a lot of times to make those even decisions. So I'm really glad that you ended up seeking support. But I also know that you used your journaling to help you through with the poetry and things. Can you share with us what that was like for you? Well, when I went through a bad bout of depression, I was 31 and I was seeing a counsellor and but he was very good and we had a good rapport and he suggested to me, why not write a diary? I'm not a big writer and I know it sounds weird because I'm a poet and I wrote a book, but I'm not a big writer. So he write a diary. So I did, I wrote a diary. So Monday, I feel like rubbish. Tuesday, I'm halfway happy. Wednesday, everything's just hurting. Friday, I feel like crap. I don't want to get out of bed. Saturday, I've had enough. I don't really want to live. These, This was sort of diluted what a diary could be. And I was reading it back and it was just making me sad. It was making me worse. Okay, if you're depressed and you're writing a depressive diary, the worst thing you could probably do is read how bad your diary is and expect to have a positive outcome out of it because it really didn't have one. But at the time, I listened to Jelly Roll. The first song, my wife, Shumi, Jelly Roll, Save Me, she found it from nowhere, this song called Save Me. And it's so sad and so hard-hitting. But And I was captivated by him and his music. And he can turn his pain into something incredible. So why can't I? Why can't I? So I used to dabble in poetry as younger and... Maybe when I was 21, I, I could rap a little bit. So I thought I could write a poem, and I did. And the first poem I ever wrote was called This Time. But it was really, I read it, and I wrote it, and read it. And that wasn't, I'm sad, I'm broken, I'm this, I'm that. This was something really positive that came out of me being so negative and so depressed and so sad. And I wrote something that was fantastic to me, fantastic to me. And I liked it and I was really, really proud of myself. And I'd done something, I'd achieved something out of being depressed. And now when I, obviously we suffer this incredible illness, which is horrible to live with. So that I'm obviously still going to get these horrible, bad days and these worst negative thoughts. And then I write about it and I get, I enjoy it. I enjoy it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm depressed. I'll write about it. Oh my gosh, that's really good. Well done. So I turned something so negative into something such a positive and it really helps. It really, really helps. Yeah, I would assume even with the mindset piece, like I'm using this as a tool to get out my thoughts, but it's taking a seed and flowering from that seed. So will you share with us a little bit more of your poetry? Is there something that you could pick for us that maybe stands out to you as something special? This was one of the first poems I've written called Man in the Mirror. I wake in the morning, I get dressed. I look in the mirror and I am shocked at what I see. Who is this man staring back at me? The man in the mirror doesn't look like he's in a fight. I'm confused. Something's not right. He is happy and smiling, but I don't feel that way. I'm an ill man. I'm an ill man every day. The man in the mirror doesn't look like he's struggling. He looks well. He isn't feeling my pain. I need to check back. 
over and over again. My image really does contradict the way that I feel. Surely the man looking back at me. He cannot be real. When others see me, do they see this man in the mirror? Is this the image they perceive? No wonder they don't see my illness when I find it hard to believe. Man in the mirror. And that really goes back to the invisibility of our illness too. Wow. Wow. Yeah, my book's on order, everybody. So if you're interested, it's $6 on Amazon in the States. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, it is $0 to order it. And so just putting a little plug out there for you. Yeah. So that is a talent you didn't know you had, huh? This is something that has sprung up recently. Yeah. Well, I started writing, I think I wrote, that says 2021 underneath it. I think it was a bit earlier than that. I think it was about 2020 I started writing. Yeah. I just, I remember I just went up and I sat on my bed and I got a pen and paper and I just started writing. I just started writing and my missus said to me, what are you doing? And I looked in embarrassment because again, there's a stigma around poetry. I'm writing a poem and hiding it from her because I was embarrassed. But what is there to be embarrassed about? There's nothing to be embarrassed about. But again, I was brought up as that man that men don't show their feelings. Men don't show their emotions. But I was doing it through poetry. And it helped. And she liked it. And I shared the first poem I wrote onto an MS page in the UK. I wasn't on any other pages at this point. This, and I was no Beneath the Tracksuit. And it got such an overwhelming response. Absolutely fantastic. I couldn't believe how well it had done. And But that... I wrote more. I just carried on writing, carried on writing all the time. And I didn't care about the stigma of the poetry thing because this was such a great relief release for me. It was fantastic. And a fun fact for you, and this is in the back of my book, I was reading poetry one night and I said to the, this guy that I was performing with and he said to me, why are you embarrassed about your poetry? I said, well, you know, the stigma about the men and how typical poets are. He said, well, that's wrong. That's wrong. So hundreds of years ago, in the time of the bravest warriors, Vikings and people like that, a scallard was a poet of them times that would do poetry about war and fights and sex and women and all of the things that happened back then. And this is how they recorded everything. So there is nothing that they're not sharing their emotions. These were the strongest people and they shared it all the time. And yeah, warrior poets they're called. So it rings true for me. A hundred percent warrior poet. I love this. Okay, so... I had no idea about that at all. So I have a little history lesson now, but I'm so glad <laughs> that you have broken the stigma because this artistry that you possess, sharing it with all of us, it brings comfort, it brings understanding, brings just community together around these feelings that you're sharing. So thank you. I'm super glad. And you mentioned Jelly Roll. So researching you, I knew he was a connection for you. He is a rapper, a, a singer, an artist. And I started listening to that 
for about an hour before our conversation today. And it's pretty deep stuff. I got to say, he really talks a lot about despair and what that felt like for him. How did listening to that type of music help you and inspire you in your poetry? Um, see, I'm not 100% sure. I just found in his words there was just an element of truth and comfort that I could relate to. I'm not the only one feeling like this. I'm not the only one in pain. I'm not the only one that thinks that death would be the only way out and that you need to climb out of this hole that you're in. And it's I just found it absolutely fantastic and comforting in his pain. It was... I felt like I was there with him and he understood what I was going through. It is so important for us to find others that can relate to us, whether they're in the MS community or not, but reaching out and finding those sources that help us to understand what we're going through, I think is so important. And you really do that through your social media too. And how has that helped you in your journey making those connections with others? A lot of time people message me and tell me thank you and say I'm so glad I'm not alone. But these are the same reasons why I share it. I These people help me. I'm not alone. I feel not alone. People are talking to me. People want to read what I'm writing and they can relate to it and I can relate to them. And it's an amazing bond that we all share, that we all fight this illness and it's horrendous, but we're all in this fight together. And it's highly reassuring to know that you have somebody with you. You would never wish this on anyone, but you are grateful that somebody is there with you. Does that make sense? Yes, very much so. And living in that gratitude is so important because this is the thing, you're recognizing what's helping you, right? And you're thankful for it and you want more of it as a result. And because it's helping you so much, you are helping others. And so I appreciate you in that as well. And I feel like if we're living in that space of recognizing our needs, appreciating how those things are helping us, then we are more powerful as a group and as a person and individual who understands that. Yeah, I agree. So is there anything else that you'd like to share with us today about your journey, about what's next for Beneath the Tracksuit? For my journey, I'm not 100% sure. I, because I never planned for none of it. I didn't plan for it. I, my missus suggested I share my poetry. I said, no, why would I do that? That's not a wise idea. I'm going to tell, show everybody my emotions and feelings and I'm not that person. But okay, all right, I'll do it. So I said, if I can just get 100 followers, many as I've got Facebook friends, I'll be happy with that. So 100 turned into 150. Okay, well, maybe I could get 500. And then it got to 500. Wow, this is incredible. Now, maybe if I reach further, I could get more. And then I think that's when I found you very early on. I think I started in May last year. And I think I I found you not long after. And then it started going incredible. And then and now I'm up to 5,200 followers. But this wasn't ever planned. I never planned to write a book. 
but I started writing it six months ago. So I wrote a book. This is incredible. I think being on here has helped me because I've just read two poems to you over through a camera. And that's my next step, I think. People keep asking me. I read on stage at a local poetry evening. And people keep asking me, I should be doing videos. I should be doing videos. Try Instagram. Try YouTube. Just make more videos for Facebook. So I think because when you read poetry, you can put across an emotion. Like you can read it out of a book. But if you read it out loud and you give it some emphasis and emotion, it sounds a hundred times better. So I think that's where I'm going next. I think that I've got a second book in planning, the diagnosis story, because there's a whole story behind the diagnosis story. And there's lots up here and there's lots of lots of cards, but it's what comes next and when and where, because I'm always tired. I'm always in bed. And I'm always asleep. <laughs> and then I've got two kids as well. And then a missus too. And we're all very, and a little puppy. And it's all very busy. It's all very busy. So it's trying to find the balance and the time to do it. It's difficult. Well, you're in high demand, obviously, because people are reaching out to you. They want more of what you are offering because they can so relate to your message. And I agree a thousand percent and hearing the poem from the actual author and feeling that emotion from you is super special. So I'm going to encourage you to continue doing that. And we cannot wait to hear more from you. So from the struggle of not knowing, from turning your pain into something incredible, the warrior poet, the comfort in relating to others. Thank you so, so much for being here with me today, Robbie. Can you please tell others where they can reach out to you and find you so that they can experience this dynamic stuff that you have to offer? That's actually amazing. Thank you. All of them words were just lovely. Thank you. So I run a Facebook page beneath the tracksuit on Facebook. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a Facebook page. But I'm there and... I'm very easy to find. I'm on Twitter as well, but I don't post there too much. And maybe watch me for YouTube, maybe Instagram, maybe. But my book is available, Thoughts of a Warrior, is available on Amazon. And recently it's just been, now it's purchasable around the world from most retailers. It's already been sold around the world in, in seven different countries. That is wonderful. That is very awesome. And I just, like I said, I thank you so much for being here, living in gratitude and focusing on our core values. And I know that yours are family and parenting. And you mentioned you have two little kids. And I read somewhere that you feel as though that parenting is a gift. Can you share a little bit about that with us and how that fills your bucket my children are amazing they they are brilliant for me they bring out that extra light in your life that you need they both look after me as much as i look after them i think it's helped them growing up with me i was diagnosed in 2015 my son was only 4 and my daughter was only 8 and so they've grown up with me in being sick and they've watched me deteriorate but they knew it could happen and it's helped them grow as people, as children. And they're absolutely fantastic. They're the most caring people in the world for children. And they're lovely. And we're just yin and yang. We're like entwined, me and the kids. It's great. It's great. Obviously, they're children, so they're 
we still have our, our things because they're still children, but they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. I couldn't fault them. And they make life so much better. Having that light in your life and just hearing them in the background once in a while and listening for that little laughter of children, I'm sure is just a great thing in your household. I just wanted to mention that because I know that uh, your core values are family and parenting and we try to focus on that a little bit. Do you have any poems that you've written about your family? I do, actually. I do. Will you take us out with one of those? I have one about my son and one about my daughter, but I'll read you this one, which is called Little Brain. Please, little brain of mine, could you just give me a break? I can deal with all the pain you cause, but now my heart begins to ache. You've caused me all this damage. This I can handle. This I can pull through. But now you're hurting my family. I don't know what I can do. You hurt me and my body in so many different places. But this pain is so much harder. It's the look on all their faces. They watch on and they weep. The more I become broken. I can see what they are feeling without one word being spoken. They all make sacrifices. They stand by my side and they love me. We fight this as a family. For that, I know I'm lucky. You're not being fair. You're hurting the ones I love. Please, little brain of mine. Haven't you done enough? Thank you so much for being here today, Robbie. I hope you keep thriving. No, thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you'll find links to all our social media, my blog, and lots more. See you next time when we chat it up with another autoimmune warrior on the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. Keep thriving. Thriving.